There we go. I thought we were going to do some like distortion or something, a little echo. What's that called? Auto-tune? When they make anybody sound like they can sing? That's like the only way I could sing is with auto-tune. Yeah, we could, we could do that. We could, Josh could get an auto-tune feature for us Sunday mornings. Um, it's good to see you all this morning. It's good to be together. Anybody excited about the uh, Super Bowl ads? No? The game, it's like, yeah, yeah who, who cares? I, I spent, Carmen and I uh, and our kids, we were in Kansas for 17 years, uh, and we had all this pressure to, like, become Chiefs fans, and we, have, we stand here faithfully that we have never, like, given in to the Chiefs' pressure, Chiefs' kingdom, and stayed faithful to the Browns, even though, even though it's been tough. Uh, but no, it's a fun, fun time. Uh, like anything, sports in their, at their best, they bring people together. And so I don't know who you're going to watch a game with tonight, but uh, have, some, have some people over, invite some church family over, or go to somebody's house, and just enjoy time together, and good food, and laugh at the Super Bowl ads. So it's good stuff. Uh, yeah, as Joel said, I'm going to be in Florida next week. The like, extended family we're a part of as a church, Ivana, stands for Evangelical Anabaptist, so we're part of this bigger family of churches. And there's a pastor's uh, conference there in Bradenton, Florida. I know it's rough. They're very wise to pick Bradenton, Florida for a location in mid-February. And so uh, we're going to go to that. And Carmen and I are also going to celebrate our 20th anniversary, which was in December. So we'll spend a few extra days there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, that goes to Carmen, believe me. Yeah, the, the, the clap should be for her, but not for me. Um, putting up with me for 20 years. Uh, but let me say a word about next Sunday. So uh, next Sunday, we're going to do something a little bit different. There are going to be quite a few of us out of town. And so we're going to have a time of uh, a little extended worship. So we'll, we'll sing a few more songs together. But it's also going to be a chance for you to share what God is doing on, in your life. So it'll be a chance to share testimonies. And, and this is such a powerful thing for the church family to do, is just to, to make real I mean, things that we're talking about, your life with God. It doesn't have to be great, like you know, amazing uh, stories. It might be, but it j- might just be the simple, just bearing witness to what God is doing in your life. So I want to encourage you. Reuben's going to be hosting that, kind of facilitating next Sunday. So be thinking about that. God, is there anything you want me to share? Is there any, any way I see you at work in my life or my family or the people around me that you can just share? Uh, I see some of you already kind of stirring a little bit, like maybe there's a story, story coming. So uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians 6. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, by way of introduction, uh, into the sermon, uh, toward the end, uh, I'm going to need two volunteers. So be thinking about that. You can trust me. It won't put you in danger much at all. Um, so uh, be thinking about that, uh, yeah, if you'd be willing to do that for me. So I'm gonna, as you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, I want to tell you um, a story. It's a true story uh, about two women named uh, Perpetua and Felicitas. I'm curious if anybody has heard of these women. Um, just a, an, an amazing story, a story of tremendous courage in the face of violence and pain. Uh, these women were martyred uh, at the, somewhere around two, 203 AD, so about 200 years after Jesus, give or take. And yeah, I just want to tell you a little bit about their story. They were, they were a part of a church and they had heard the good news of Jesus, 
and they were getting ready to be baptized. The early church at that point had a process that sometimes could last up to a year of preparing people for baptism. And it was at a time when there was a lot of pressure from outside, from the the Roman Empire who was feeling like the rise of the Christian movement, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they did the only thing they knew how to do, and that was threatened with violence. And so to become a Christian and to say, yeah, I'm choosing to follow Jesus and I'm choosing to be baptized was in a lot of ways to take your life into your own hands, like to risk your life, as it is for some Christians around the world even today. And so they were a group of, there were six people, six Christians who were set to be baptized when they were arrested. And their charge was being followers of Jesus. And what was interesting is that there were only five of them who were arrested, but the, the man who was in charge of shepherding them toward baptism, um, his name was uh, Saturius, joined them in prison. Like, he volunteered to say, like, I, I love these people so much, like, I'm not going to let them suffer this fate without them, or without me. So he joins them in prison knowing that their sentence was going to be death. And so uh, this was at a time when um, the gladiator games were still happening and just like all of the grotesque violence that was the arena um, was the sentence for Christians at this time, that they were going to be paraded out into the arena and put on display and their lives would be taken from them in public. And so it was the night before the games, before their execution, And these Christians, these six now, they gathered around together and they celebrated the Last Supper. And they were kind of kept in these these cages, prisons, with lots of other people who are also going to be part part of these gladiator games. And they're celebrating with the elements they had. They're celebrating their Last Supper. They're, They're taking the body and the blood of Jesus and they're remembering their faith. And they're just, to the people around, people who are passing by, to the other prisoners, they're just declaring boldly the gospel. Right? They're, they're just declaring the goodness of Jesus in their last meal together. And it says that many people who saw them believed and put their faith in Jesus. In fact, there was a, a prison guard whose name was Prudence who tells this story. He's the one who kind of gave the account. And he said he was so convicted by just the passion that these six Christians had. It was just like overcome. He says, I observed their great power. Now, isn't that crazy, right? They're, they're helpless. They're, they're condemned to die. And yet he could feel and he could see and he witnessed their great power that their God was with them, even at their end. And so the, the leader of the group, Saturius, he asked for the prison guard's ring. And the prison guard gives him his ring, and Saturius dips it in his own blood and gives it back to him as, a, as just a, a, visual, a visual, visual sign of like his, his dedication to Jesus and the marks of, of Jesus as Lord. So the next day, um, they march into the arena to these screaming people, and they march into the arena not as dejected, fearful slaves, but purposefully and joyfully. Now, Felicitas had given birth two days earlier. So she was arrested while she was pregnant, and she had given birth two days earlier. And the people who were in charge of the games uh, demanded that all of the, the people who were condemned would put on costumes 
And they refused. These Christians refused. They said, you will not rob us of our identity. And here's what Perpetua said. She said, now we come here of our own free will so that our freedom might not be constrained. Like, no, you will see our faces and we will have our identity to the end. And so here's Perpetua and Felicitas. And so they go out and, and these wild animals are released into the arena. And immediately they're stand, these two women are standing together and they're hit by, um, by like a wild cow, um, a bull, I guess. It, but the text says a cow. And they're, they're both stunned and kind of knocked unconscious. But Perpetua is revived first. And she, she wakes up and she sees uh, her sister, not biological sister, but her sister in Christ, Felicitas, there on the ground. And she goes to her and she pulls her to her feet. And the two stood side by side and they waited to face death together. Now, I want you to see this image of these two women. Because this was like mind-blowing to the people who were witnessing this. This is obviously an icon. It's like a, a, just a visual representation of it. We don't have a picture of it. But the, the thing that was so mind-blowing to these people is that Perpetua was a very wealthy woman who had noble birth. She was a woman of standing high rank in society. And Felicitas was a slave. And here are these two women who had nothing in common on the outside, but are united in their faith in Jesus and are standing together in their final moments facing, facing the certainty of death together. And most of the time in the arena, it was every person for him or herself, but it wasn't that way with the Christians, that they were together. And years later, a church leader named Origen, who is a bishop, he, he thinks back about this event and these two women and, and the six who, were, who gave their lives that day. And he says it was like the victory of Christ was on display in procession before the whole world. There was this visual depiction of the gospel right there in, in, the, in the middle of this grotesque setting. So this is a hard story, right? This is, this is not like, hey, let's all you know, feel good and whatever. But this, this is hard. And, and the world can be a really terrible place. And the world is full of, of brokenness and pain. Um, people do really evil things to each other. We see it around the world today. One of my, the quotes that I think about often, and I say it to the kids often, is from this guy, Frederick Beekner. He's a wonderful Christian man who passed away, um, I think, 15 years ago or so. And he said this, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. And these people, like these, these Christians, they just lived this out. They were not afraid in, uh, even in their last moments of life. And so the question is, like, how did this happen? How does, does a wealthy woman and a, a slave woman, how do they get united in such a way that they will, like, refuse to face death without each other side by side? What in the world could have bonded them together like that? How do you explain what happened in the arena that day. It has everything to do with about 200 years earlier, this man 
named Jesus of Nazareth, who was the very presence of God in flesh, who steps into this world and he brings grace and truth and peace and the glory of God revealed in his own life. And he, he loved people and he called people from like diverse backgrounds, people who were very wealthy and people who were very poor and people who had political power and people who didn't and people had this political persuasion and people who were on the other side. And he called them all together in himself and he formed in himself this new humanity, this new group of people. And he gave his life and he overcame the powers of sin and death, and, and God raised him from the dead and, and gave him like this, this power, the victory that Jesus won even over death itself. And so these two women standing there are this sign of the gospel, the sign of the new humanity in Christ. Now, why do I say all this? Like, why, why would you begin a sermon this way? It's because we're talking about kind of a difficult passage in Ephesians 6 today. And, and I want to like... I want us to see that the gospel is the power that has transformed, has transformed people, has transformed relationships, has transformed culture, and it can still do it in our world today. Um, but it doesn't, the gospel doesn't change hearts through power over, through controlling other people, through, you know, the power of the sword and power of violence. The gospel always transforms hearts from the inside out by choosing to serve and to love and to come alongside and to be with each other. So um, we've been in this passage on Ephesians 6, and we've been just talking about how the gospel changes our relationships. So next slide. Um, how does the gospel, the good news, reshape our relationships? And the principle that Paul gives us in Ephesians 5.21 is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So everybody, like, okay, so if you're a part of the family of God, we submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I care for you? And we do this for one another. So we talked about wives and husbands, marriage, how we do that. We talked about, last week, we talked about children and parents. How, how do we do that together? And this week, and here, here's where this gets difficult, is we're talking about slaves and masters. So this is what the, the text says in Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. And so let's read the text, and then we'll begin unpacking it together. Slaves, obey your earthly master with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good they do. Will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts um, to, to hear the truth of the gospel through this this text, this text that feels kind of foreign, it feels kind of hard for us to, to get a hold of, but I pray, God, that, that you would shine, shine light and truth and your grace into our hearts. Through this, we pray in Jesus' name. So how many of you know the Bible can be difficult sometimes? I mean, have you ever read in the Bible and you're just like, wait a second, that's in there? Like, you get in this Bible reading plan, and then all of a sudden you come to a pattern, and you're like, all right, like this, this is good. Like this, yes, I can apply this to my life. This feels really good. And then you get to a spot where you're just like, it's almost like the record screech. of like, Aah. what do you do with that? And this is one of those texts. And I'll be honest, like as a pastor, it's really easy to be like, ah, we don't need to talk about that. Let's just jump to the next passage. Um, but 
I think it's super important that we actually look at these texts. Because if we do, if we can get into them and we can understand what was actually happening here, I think we'll, we'll see freedom and we'll see life and the goodness of Jesus revealed in this. But there's danger in this too. Because sometimes you come across a passage like this and then you go to your, your best like, you know, theologian friend named Google and you just like... And you, all of a sudden, you're on like a YouTube page that starts talking about like, oh, look at the Bible. You know, there's all this like, it endorses slavery. And, you know, the Bible is just kind of like, uh, endorses like, you know, sexism and misogyny and all this kind of stuff. And this is not true. It's not true. And so we have to be very careful. And so part of the reason we do this in a group setting today is to model how do we actually, when we, when we encounter a difficult text in the Bible, how do we look at it through the lens of Jesus, right? How do we unpack? How do we get through the difficult sort of layer to try to understand it through the heart of Jesus? And that's what we do as followers of Jesus. But we also have to be super honest that, you know, that these were the texts that about 160 years ago right here in the U.S., people used to justify slavery? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was like 160 years ago. People, like slave owners in the South, would say like, well, yeah, like slavery was a God-ordained thing. They misread these texts in that way. And so we have to be honest about that, that like it's really important that we learn to interpret the Bible through the person of Jesus. He is the fullness of, of God's revelation. So let me ask you a question. Does the Bible endorse slavery? And I hope everybody would very quickly say, no, right? No, it does not. Um, the idea of, of slavery, it, it, where does it come from? Um, it comes from the fall. It comes from our corrupt hearts. It comes from like the sin that is in the human heart when we rebel and we cut ourselves off from God. Well, now all of a sudden, rather than serving each other and submitting to each other in love, we take advantage of each other. And those who have power and strength, they, they try to take control of the weak. This is a part of the broken, fallen world that God wants to redeem and wants to heal and wants to fix. And Jesus came into the world to fix. Um, and, and so um, God is actively working against things like slavery, and he wants all of that evil to be eradicated in all of its forms. Here's a list of fa famous abolitionists and civil rights leaders. Um, people like Frederick Douglass and Harry Beecher Stowe and William Wilberforce and um, John Brown and uh, William Lloyd Garrison and Martin Luther King Jr. Do you know what they all had in common? Anybody? They were followers of Jesus. And they were motivated by their faith in Jesus to do the work that they did. Right? Like, th there is a long history of, of the... the the good news of Jesus transforming this. So, so what's going on in these texts? Like, so in, here in Ephesians 6, let's just be honest. That there is a big culture gap between where we are, I'll go to this side, where we are today in Ohio in 2024 and where they were in Ephesus in AD, let's say, 50, right? There's a big culture gap. And so let's just talk about that just a little bit to understand their culture, their time, their day. Like, we live in a moment where we've come through the civil rights movement. We've seen the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation. We, like, we look back on that, and there's still lots of progress to be made. But, like, we're just grateful for that stuff that has happened and the brave people, followers of Jesus, who led the charge in that way. But back in Ephesus in AD 50, slaves were, were just like a part of life. In the Roman world, like when Paul wrote this letter, probably somewhere between a third to half of all of the population were in slavery. Think about that. 
How many people live in Dover? Like 15,000 people? Is that what it is? Something like that? Imagine if a third of the people were in slavery. A third to a half. Now, slavery in the ancient world was very different than what happened here in the U.S., like the, the transatlantic slave trade. See, like slavery, in, in the ugly history here in the U.S. Was, was all about racial control and segregation. It wasn't that way in the, in the early, um, in, in the Roman world. What happened was, um, let's say it wasn't based on race or ethnicity. It was based on life circumstances. So let's say you, um, you're trying to provide for your family, and you go and get a loan to start a, a farm. You're going to start farming. And you buy this little plot of ground, and you start farming, and things are going really well, but there's a drought. It's like, okay, I can, I can make it. We can, we can get through. We'll just get through this next year. Maybe you get a little bit bigger loan. You get to the next year, and then there's a flood. And all your crops are, are gone. And you realize, like, I got nothing. Now, there are no social safety nets, right? There's, there are no, like, social systems like we have today. And you don't have any relatives who are going to buy you out. Do you know what your only option was? You got this massive debt, and you cannot get out of it. You can't, like, sort of maneuver your way out of it. It's like your only option was to sell yourself to pay off your debts. So you would find a wealthy person in your community. Hopefully, if you had say so, you would, you would hopefully be able to, to convince somebody who was good and kind and gracious and loving, but maybe you didn't have connections and you didn't do that. And so you had to sell yourself to somebody who would pay off your debts and then you belonged to them. That was what slavery was like in, the, in that day, in Paul's day. Are you, are you with me? You feel this. So it was like, it was like bond slaves or, or almost like indentured servitude where one person owns another person to, to sort of, after they have gone bankrupt. And it was terrible, right? I mean, slaves had no legal rights. If you were a woman, you were especially like uh, in danger of, of violence and sexual assault. I mean, this was, it was terrible. So we asked the question, like, why didn't Paul come down harder on slavery? Right, like Paul, like you're, you're, you're bold, and he's obviously in jail, so he's not afraid to say things that are going to get him put in prison. Like, Paul, why didn't you, like, emancipation and proclamation, I can't say that word today, right? Why didn't you do that then? Does anybody else feel that? And again, like, name the culture gap. We live in a time of democracy, and do you know what? If you have rights infringed upon and you want to protest, you're allowed to do that. You know, because we have this governing document of our country um, that says, we the people. Like, the preamble to the Constitution is like, we the people. Like, right? We have rights that are unalienable rights. And, and sometimes, you know, it's messed up. But my goodness, that is a good thing. You know, um, there was no we the people in the first century. Do you know who it was? It was me the Caesar. Right? There was one dude who had all the power. And do you know what happened if you protested? Because people did. You got crucified very quickly, dead. I mean, just violence crushing down any kind of... So sometimes there were slave revolts, and they just got crushed with incredible brutality by the Roman army. Do you feel the tension in that, right? Let's not, like, put Paul in our day. Like, think about Paul, where he was in his day, in his time. There was no path toward change. Protest was certain death. Rebellion led to crucifixion. And so... What Paul does do is so inspired by the Holy Spirit and so brilliant that he plants the seeds of the gospel 
in the hearts of people. And he knows that as the seeds of the gospel grow, they will uproot and overshadow slavery. That's what he does. And so I want you to see this. Um, so let's look at what he actually says. Verses um, 5 to 8 here. He, he says, first, first thing he says is he addresses slaves. Like, imagine this. You, you, this was your story. You, you got in some bad financial shape, and you ended up having to sell yourself. You had no other options. You're completely helpless, and now you're a slave to this person who thinks they own you, and then you hear the gospel. Like, you hear, like, okay, Jesus, he loves me, and he died for me, and he gave his life for me, and it doesn't matter my life circumstances. I can belong to this family of God, and so you start connecting with the church, but you still feel like a second-class citizen, right? Because you're just like, Everybody tells me, like, this is where I belong. I'm on the bottom rung. I'm not even on a rung of the social ladder. And you come to church, and there's a letter from Pastor Paul, who's in prison in Rome, and he, he writes, and he's talking about the good news of Jesus, and, like, you are God's handiwork. Like, you, the church, are God's artwork. You are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Like, all of these things, and you're like, yeah, 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 that's for everybody else, but not me. And all of a sudden, then Paul says, and those of you who are slaves... And for the first time, you're just like, well, like I, have a, like I have a place here. Paul assumes that there are slaves in the church. That's revolutionary. That there are slaves and masters who are in the same congregation of people. If you put yourself in that world, it is mind-blowing that that's the reality. That you would have people at the top end of the social spectrum and the bottom end of the social spectrum in the same church, learning together, growing together. Can you appreciate how radical that would have been in the first century? Somebody say, yeah, just to make, okay, good, good, good. So Paul talks to them directly, and he gives them dignity, and, and he, like, he's basically saying, like, you have this new identity in Christ. All the things that were said that are true of every person who surrendered their life to Jesus in the first three chapters of Ephesians are true of you as a slave. They're true of you. Like, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. They have, he, he gives them dignity. They have this new identity. And notice, like, notice how he frames everything in these verses. Is, um, he says, just as you would obey Christ... Now, how many of you know that Christ was not Jesus' last name? It was like, I thought it was like Jesus Christ. Like, that's how he would sign his name. It's, it's not. The word Christ, and if you thought that, yeah, okay, that's great. But the word Christ is a name we give to him, and it just means the anointed one or the king. So when we see Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the king, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the savior. And so he frames this whole thing, and he's like, it is Jesus the king who changes everything. He reframes everything under Christ's ultimate authority. And he's saying in this text that both slave and master are standing under Christ the king right? It's a much bigger picture. Don't get lost on just like the, the little power struggles that you're having here. Remember that there is a king on the throne, and it is not you, masters. It is not you, wealthy people. It is Christ who is the king of heaven and earth. He reframes everything under that. Verse 6, so he speaks to slaves, and he's like, obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but do it as slaves of Christ. So who do you belong to? You belong to Christ. There are numerous times in Paul's letters where he'll do this. In, in 1 Corinthians 7 is one. He's like, slaves, masters, you're all slaves of Christ. He's like, he's, he's 
upsetting the whole power structure. And he's like, you are slaves of Christ. You don't belong to your master. No human being can belong to another person or is owned by another person. You belong to Christ. And how does Christ treat those who belong to him? With dignity and honor and love. And he lifts their faces. Um, and then he says, he says to those who are in this position, he said, like, serve wholeheartedly. Serve like with single-heartedness toward, um, toward this person who is your earthly master, and it, as if you were serving the Lord and not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. Make your identity, so again, put yourself in this position. Make your identity so rooted in Christ, in Christ the King, to say like, okay, I'm not owned by any other person. I am in this life circumstance that is terrible, but I don't belong to anybody else. Do you know who I belong to? I belong to Christ. And everything I do in this world, I'm going to do for the glory of God. And I'm going to serve, and I'm going to serve like I'm serving Christ. So he's giving them not only a new identity, but he's giving them new motivation. Now, how does that feel? Does that make it feel any better, what Paul says? So let me, let me unpack. Can you guys have a little sympathy for me? This is a hard text to preach. Somebody say, okay, we get it. We feel it. All right. Um, here, here's what I want to do. I want to put, this is where I need two volunteers. I want to illustrate this because what Jesus does, what Paul's doing here in Ephesians is, is an example of what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5. Two volunteers. Don't all like stampede. Ben's coming up. Anybody else? Kurt, come on up. Okay, so in Matthew, uh, next slide here. There we go. So does anybody know this? In, in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Does anybody know what this text is referring to? So Jesus, he's like, hey, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, like hate your enemies, all of that. And Jesus is like, I'm teaching you a different thing. And he uses this example. If anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Can we give these folks a hand here? They're going to put this scripture on display for us. Thank you, guys. All right. Who wants to be the Roman soldier? I have this, this wonderful blunt object. Kurt's going to be the Roman soldier. Okay, you got pack here, all right? And you are a lowly Jewish person, average citizen. Now, what Jesus is referring to here in this text, everybody would have known this. Because in this day, Roman soldiers had the authority to, as they're walking down a road, right? You're, you're walking down the road here. Um, and all of a sudden, he sees a lowly Jewish, you know, citizen. Yes, he would force him to carry his pack. You could do this. It didn't matter where Ben's going. Yeah, pretend the pack is super heavy. And it didn't matter. I mean, he, I, but wait a second. I got this stuff. I got to get to market. He didn't care. It didn't matter where he was going. He says, you will carry my pack. Now, under Roman law, they were allowed to carry, to make somebody carry their pack. And he, and he guesses how far? One mile. A mile is a Roman instrument of measurement, right? One mile down the road. And miles were marked on the Roman roads. So which way, which way are you going, Kurt? That way. That way. Okay. So you're going you're gonna to make sure he carries your pack, right? So you know, you'd probably walk behind him, in front of him, whatever. Okay. So you get to the one mile mark. Okay, Ben, you're at the one mile mark. What do you think Ben is normally going to do? He's headed this way, right? What do you, what do you think Ben is going to do? What are you going to do? 
It's going to go that way. And you're probably going to throw the pack down. You might spit a little bit. You might swear under your breath. Not you, but like you can imagine. Right? Can you imagine this? He gets to that one mile mark. And it's like, wow, like, forget you. And now he's got to go look for somebody else to carry his pack. Do you feel this? Okay, this was, everybody would have known this. Now, what does Jesus say to do? Let's read this out loud. If anyone forces you to go one mile, what does that do inside of us? Now, here, come, come back to the middle here a little bit more. Okay, so we're going to redo this. Ben is not just a, a lowly, you know, citizen. He's a follower of Jesus. He like, he's been following Jesus. And all of a sudden, along comes a Roman soldier, says, hey, buddy, follow my pack. And what, is, what does Ben do? He says, my pleasure. Because he eats Jesus chicken. Um, you didn't get that joke. Never mind. It was a Chick-fil-A <laughs> joke. Okay, so they're walking, right? And, and you get to the mile marker. And what happens? Are you going back this way now? They're just walking back and forth down the road, apparently. I mean, we can go so far that Yeah, it's true. So what happens now? So all of a sudden, you get to the mile marker. And here's the other thing. Like, Romans, they were under, like, uh, the obligation to never allow Jews to carry their pack more than one mile. They couldn't do it. Like, right? Because there was, there was like, a limit there. You can only force somebody to carry your pack one mile. So you get to the mile marker, right? And Ben just keeps walking. Stop helping me. Yeah. Okay, now hold, hold on a second here. Yeah, keep, keep going, keep going. What's he going to do? Like, who? Wait a second. Is, is Ben being forced to carry the pack anymore? Who has the power in this situation? The person who is made to be the servant all of a sudden has the power. Why? Because they're not being forced to do it anymore. Do you see this? It's, it's so powerful, right? All of a sudden, now the Roman soldier who's got the armor and the sword and all the power, the power of Caesar behind him, he has no power over somebody who's willingly serving him. Now, can we give them a hand? Thank you, guys. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so can you see what Jesus is doing in this text? Right? Like Ben, he would have no power to actually change his situation through force, through violence, through coercion or control. He had no path to do that. But do you know how he could? It's through voluntary submission, through choosing. The motivation makes all the difference in the world. Now take that back to what Paul is saying here. So he speaks to those who have no power, who have no authority, who like everybody knows, like they have no path to change their situation. And he says, you know what? If you have a different motivation... As like difficult as this circumstance is, if you have a different motivation, nobody can force you to do something that you want to do. Nobody can force you to, to do something that you are choosing to do. And if Christ is Lord, then you can actually change the power structure by saying, oh, no, no, you're not forcing me to do this. I'm choosing to do this. Do you know why? Because Christ loves me and I belong to him and I believe Christ loves you too. I believe he loves you too. And so I'm going, to choose, I'm going to choose to serve you. You don't have any power over me. You're not my master, but I'm going to serve you. Now, again, like it feels foreign to us. It feels strange to us, right? Because it, thank God this isn't the world we live in. But can you understand? Do you know what Paul does? Is he like, 
he throws this like gospel hand grenade, that's maybe a bad metaphor, into the institution of slavery. And he knows that given enough time and the thing's going to go off. He knows that the good news of Jesus is going to, maybe the tree was a better metaphor. I kind of like the gospel hand grenade, right? He knows that slavery's days are numbered. Now look at what he says. So he says all of that to the slaves. He says all of that to slaves. Now stick with me because it gets even crazier. Um, look at what he says. Now if you're, if you're like a master, like you've got wealth, you've got power, you feel like you've got people who belong to you, and you're hearing Paul speak to the slaves, and you're like, that's about right. Like, all right, they've been getting out of line and all this new freedom in Christ. Like you feel like Paul's setting them straight. Look what he says to masters. This is so revolutionary. Uh, slide 17. He says, and masters, treat your slaves, and what does the text say? In the same way as what? In the same way as what? As they're treating you. I mean, does that, like, blow your mind? Like, if you're a master, you're sitting there like, wait a second, you're just telling them to serve me in love, like choose to do that, and then he turns and he says, okay, you have a position of power. You treat your slaves in the same way. Serve them. Love them. Give your life for them. I mean, this is what he, like, this is crazy. No one has ever said anything like this before. This is absolutely mind-blowing. They don't belong to you. They belong to Jesus. And by the way, you belong to Jesus too. Right? There's one master, there's one Jesus who is the Christ. This was unheard of. And then he goes on, he says, do not threaten them. Do not use force. Like, do not threaten them. Don't misuse your authority. Why? Because you have a master in heaven. And he is the Lord of them, and he is the Lord of you. And then he, he kind of says this. He says, and there is no favoritism with him. Like, this is so powerful, what Paul is doing here. There is no favoritism with him. Do you know that word favoritism appears nowhere else in all of Greek literature before the New Testament? And it appears numerous times in the New Testament. It's like, do you know God does not show favoritism? The gospel made such a difference in the lives of people, in the lives of, of like, what was happening there in the first century, that they had to invent a new word to, like, make sense of it. That God, he doesn't show favoritism because everybody showed favoritism. Like there, there's the hierarchy and there are people on the social ladder, but that's not the way it is with God. The word, Ben Witherington says this, the word favoritism or partiality, it seems to have appeared for the first time in, in Greek literature in the New Testament. A couple of examples there. It has background in the Old Testament concept of lifting the face, indicating the elevation of someone's status and honor. So as a way of giving another more respect, this Greek word literally means to take or to judge at face value. So the gospel teaches us not to take at face value a person's life, not to look at the surface, but to look deeper, to lift the face of others. Do you see, this is so profoundly beautiful. Paul like invents this word to give, um, to give a picture of what the gospel does. And, and then Paul, he's going to go on later in Galatians 3, and he says this. This is like the hallmark of, of the New Testament picture. There in Christ is neither. Let's, let's read this together. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, 
nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. It's absolutely revolutionary. That in the family of God, there, there is no favoritism. Like in, in this new humanity that Jesus created, there is no favoritism. That we don't look at each other on the face value and like to see what the world sees, but we lift each other's faces. Like we see the value that is inherent in every soul because Jesus gave his life for every human being on the planet. Do you know the story of Onesimus and Philemon? You've got this little book in the back of your Bible that I'm guessing like maybe you probably don't read it all that often. It's one little, it's like the easiest book in the Bible to read because it's so short, right? It's like, it's so short and it's so powerful. The book of Philemon. Are you familiar with this? Check it out. You can read it in like under a minute, probably. But it is like this amazing picture of the gospel. So let me, just real quick, the story of Onesimus and Philemon. The apostle Paul, he writes the letter of Philemon. And he's, again, he's in a Roman prison cell. <laughs> and there's this um, a master-slave relationship. Philemon is the one who, who owns a slave named Onesimus. And somehow, somewhere along the way, Onesimus does something wrong. He somehow offends Philemon, his master. And then Onesimus bails. He bolts, runs away. Now, under Roman law, if your slave ran away, you have the power of life and death over them. Right? This is what Caesar said. You have the power of life and death. You can't have slaves running away. So Philemon would have had the right to have Onesimus put to death. Onesimus runs to the Apostle Paul. And he comes to see him, and he ends up putting his faith in Jesus through Paul's message. So here Paul, like this runaway slave, comes to him, and they like start this relationship. And Onesimus not only is a, a follower of Jesus, but he begins helping Paul while Paul's in prison, like bringing him things and serving him or whatever. So Paul and Onesimus, a runaway slave, have this amazing relationship. So the letter to Philemon in your Bibles is Paul writing to Philemon, the one who felt like he owned Onesimus, and he sends Onesimus back with the letter to Philemon. Now, here's what Paul writes in this letter. We're just going to read a, a chunk of it here. Listen to this. Therefore, therefore, although in Christ, this is Apostle Paul writing, I could be bold and I could order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. What could he order him to do? Like, you take Onesimus back and you don't charge him the wrongs. But he's like, ah, I'm going to choose to appeal to you on the basis of love. I love, I love Paul here. It's so good. It is, it is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. By the way, I'm in jail. I got some street cred here for the sake of the gospel. I mean, I'm an old man. Like, come on. It's Paul. And I appeal to you for who? My, my son, Onesimus. Do you feel the, like, the parental love Paul has for Onesimus? I appeal to you, Philemon, for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in change. Formerly, he was useless to you. What's he saying? Like, he was just your slave. He was useless to you to do any real good, but now he has become both useful to you and to me. So here's the deal. I am sending him to you, who is my very heart, back to you. And I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place, Philemon, in helping me while I'm in change for the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. Do you feel how hard Paul's leaning on him here? 
I didn't, want to, I didn't want to overstep. I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but voluntary. I love this so much. It's like Paul is leaning on all of his authority as an apostle to, like, to, to get Philemon to do what he wants to do here. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that he, you might have him back forever no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Man, this is so good. And so he is very dear to me, but he is even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. He's not your slave anymore, Philemon. He's your brother in Christ. See him as a brother. So now he says, if you consider me a partner, Paul's leveraging his authority. He's like, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would what? Welcome him as you would welcome me, the Apostle Paul. And if he owes you anything, if he has done any wrong, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. I will cover it. I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand, and I will pay it back, not to mention that... What? Not to mention that what? You owe me. Don't forget, I'm the one who introduced you to Jesus. Like, you owe your faith to me and your eternal destiny. Like, I love this so much because it just puts on display the radical nature of this new family, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, and I am confident of your obedience. And I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I'm asking. Do you love Paul? This is so good. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you as an answer to your prayers. Like this. This is like the heart of the Apostle Paul coming through for Onesimus and Philemon. And this is like, this is the gospel grenade that he throws into the heart of slavery, this institution of slavery, and at some point it's going to go off, and, and slavery will not stand if we see each other not in the way the world sees, but through the eyes of Jesus. How, how are we doing? Do you, do you feel this? Like the change that Jesus makes? There is no favoritism in the family of God. There's no room for favoritism in the family of God. So like, for us, for us today, how do we see each other, not on face value, like not just what the world sees, not like our social status, not the amount of money we have, the way we dress, the education we have, like where we live, any of those things, because everybody looks at those things in the world. But the church is different than that, right? The church is like this reprieve from all of that because Jesus is at the center. And Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all kinds of people to myself. I'll draw all kinds of people to myself. And the church is that place where, like, the, the thing that we have in common, people look at us and are like, well, what do those people have in common? Well, not much except Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord and he's at the center and we're moving toward him, we're going to be drawn toward each other. And we're not people who are going to look at each other on face value, but we're going to lift each other's faces so that we can see the dignity that we have as people who bear the image of God and people whom Christ has given his life for. Can we do that as a church? Can we do that? How would we do that practically? How would you do that today? How would, yeah, how would we do that? Like, would it, would it make a difference in the way we treated each other as a church? And, and I think this is, this is part of, like, I think what makes LifeBridge a, a beautiful church is I think we do this, but it's always good to be reminded of this. 
to say let's never allow the divisions of the world, whatever they are, whether they're wealth or politics or social status, um, gender, ethnicity, anything like let's never let any of these superficial barriers come between us and what Jesus is doing in us. Let's, let's be this culture of grace like that, that is a, a safe place from all the power structures of the world and in the middle of a dark world that, like Joel said earlier, is divided and has all of these conflicts. Let's be a sign right here in the middle of the world of what Jesus, of what Jesus is doing in our hearts and in our lives together. Can we, can we trust God to do that among us? So God, um, thank you. Thank you for your word. As powerful as it is, and, and Lord, we, we do struggle sometimes to just see the, the picture through the words. And so I, I just ask, God, my futile attempt to try to unpack this, Lord, that your spirit would do what my words can't do. And the power of the gospel would sink deep, deep into our hearts. And that um, if, there's, if there are any of us who feel like we are sort of pushed aside and... And just like we don't belong or like second class, like God, I just pray that you would just take those lies down in our hearts and our minds. Help us to receive the truth of who you say we are, that we belong to you. We're created in your image. We, we're, we're in Christ. We are a part of this new humanity. And I pray, God, that we could treat each other and see each other that way. God, do your work in us so that right here, right here in the middle of Dover, right here with all the other churches as well who are following you too, that we could be like this sign that when people interact with people interact with us, they'd be like something's different, and we could just just humbly say, "Yeah, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's all it's all Him." So God, do Your work in us through the power of Your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, "Amen." Amen.